I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. Lawmakers in Congress and in the executive branch have recently launched antitrust investigations into several of the leading big tech companies, including Facebook, Google, Apple, and Amazon. What are the legal theories underlying these antitrust investigations, and what could they mean for the future of American competition and American freedom? Joining us to explore these crucial questions and more are two of America's leading experts on antitrust. Mark Jameson is visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies telecommunications, the Federal Communications Commission, and how technology affects the economy. He's also the director and Gunter Professor of the Public Utility Research Center at the University of Florida's Warrington College of Business. Dr. Jameson served on the FCC transition team for President-elect Trump and a special advisor to the chair of the governor of Florida's Internet Task Force. Mark, it is wonderful to have you with us. Well, thank you. Glad for the opportunity. And Barry Lynn is executive director of the Open Markets Institute. He previously worked at the New America Foundation, researching and writing about monopoly power. He is the author of the uh, I think I'm allowed to say superb because I learned so much from it. A superb book, Cornered, The New Monopoly Capitalism and the Economics of Destruction and End of the Line, The Rise and Coming Fall of the Global Corporation. Barry, it's wonderful to have you with us. Hey, it's great to be here. Let us jump into the New York Times report uh, at the beginning of June that the federal government is stepping up its scrutiny of the world's biggest tech companies, uh, including Apple, Google, Facebook, and Amazon. Uh, Barry, what are the legal theories underlying these this increased scrutiny? And given the fact that antitrust law has traditionally uh, in recent years focused on consumer welfare rather than competition, to what degree do these new investigations represent a shift in focus? Well, we actually don't know. Uh, we really don't know whether they're going to follow through with any sort of case here. We, this doesn't mean that they're going to be uh, bringing Google to court or bringing Amazon to court or bringing anybody to court. Uh, you know, there's uh, thus far we're dealing with uh, some you know pretty uh, vague information, uh, and uh, you know, so what theory they might use uh, if they bring a case uh, to court um, is. Um, uh, is to be determined. Um, you know, in some ways, the more interesting thing that we're observing right now is the decision by the antitrust subcommittee of the uh, in, in Congress, uh, the Judiciary Committee in Congress, to investigate the uh, uh, big tech corporations um, over the course of the next eighteen months. They're actually starting. Uh, tomorrow with a, uh, a hearing that's looking at the effect of uh, uh, the power that Google and, and Facebook have over the distribution of information, over advertising markets, the power that these two corporations have over uh, the news that we hear and the, the stability and, and, well, sort of the, the viability, the economic viability of our news uh, corporations. Uh, so uh, there's a lot to be determined. It's, it's an exciting moment. Uh, we haven't seen this kind of a action, this kind of interest in a really long time. Um, but uh, we, we don't know what's going to happen. 
Thank you very much for that introduction. Mark, can you give us a sense of what legal theories, if any, the federal government might be invoking to step up its scrutiny of the world's biggest tech companies? And do you agree with Barry or not that the most significant development is the decision by the antitrust subcommittee in Congress to look at the power over information and advertising that the platforms have? Sure. Um, I guess in, in some sense, I have a lot in common with uh, with Barry. And there's a search for a theory here. Uh, I, I wish that it was clear that somebody had a coherent theory of, of what's the challenge. And I'm not sure in the political arena, we really have that. As I listen to people talk, read what people write, what I hear more is is a is a kind of a gut reaction to how large some of the companies are, and a concern that if they become successful, then they turn that success into kind of political power, if you will. Um, we hear concerns about how they might bias content um, against one one type of person or another, and and we have a lot of complaints from rivals. Uh, people who would really love to to be competitors in this space, but find that for one reason or another, they're just not gaining traction against uh, some of those that are that are doing much better. One of the things I'd really like for people to keep in in mind here is that we're in a situation where all of these companies have become successful, not because someone in government did them a favor or because they were able to leverage something um, in a corrupt way. To, to gain an advantage. But what they really did is just made a lot of people very happy. Every of, of the, all the two billion or whatever the number is of people using Facebook, that's their choice. They all chose that. You and I, when we use uh, Google for search, we're choosing that. When we buy from Amazon versus Walmart versus anyone else, we're choosing that. And, and so the, the size isn't about power as much as it is about a lot of people being satisfied. And I think we want to be cautious um, in how we, we interpret that as being something to be a, afraid of. Um, that's pulled, that the, the, um, the Congress is taking a look at it is, is indeed a significant event because in this case, we actually have some bipartisan agreement. I don't think it's a it's, uh, massive agreement, but at least some where both sides of the aisle have have felt that um, things haven't kind of haven't gone the way that they would like for them to, and that they they would like to do something about it. But that very idea there, that things haven't gone the way a politician might like them to, is not a cause for an antitrust case. Um, all of us have our preferences violated at some point. As long as we're able to make choices, then we can pursue whatever is feasible in the business space. So that's how I, I think about it. I'm concerned that there really isn't a coherent theory. And I agree that um, we're in a moment that's, that's really very interesting and maybe unique. Thank you very much for those introductory thoughts. Well, let's focus the discussion by beginning with Facebook. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, not long ago in March, proposed breaking up companies including Facebook as well as Amazon and Google. And Chris Hughes, uh, a former Facebook founder, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times recently called It's Time to Break Up Facebook. And then finally, there's a great uh, summary article, Is Big Tech Headed for a Big Breakup? AP News uh, recently published it, which sketches out a potential antitrust case against Facebook, which might include spinning off WhatsApp and 
Instagram on the grounds that Facebook can squash competitors by buying them or using its resources to mimic services they offer. Barry, what is the case for breaking up Facebook? What would it look like? And why do you think it might be a good idea? Yeah, we've actually, we were the first ones uh, here at Open Markets to propose that particular breakup of Facebook, which is spinning off Instagram, which is spinning off WhatsApp, which is based, you know, making the case that those, um, the enforcers should never have allowed Facebook to buy those two corporations in the first place. Uh, you know, and, and the one idea is that it's just providing more platforms for uh, people to communicate with each other, more different alternatives, more experimentation in terms of privacy settings, in terms of the types of services these organizations uh, provide. You know, and, and um, uh, you know, and Mark said it's like, oh, there's a lot of choice. Well, the thing is, is that uh, when you have the dominant corporation, in this case Facebook, buying up its uh, the upstart corporations, its rivals, before they can actually really get going, you actually don't have choice. You know, so it's like right there in those two mergers is proof that uh, we really don't have choice when it comes to uh, uh, this kind of, of service. You know, what, what people call uh, you know uh, 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 social media. Um, you know, but. Uh, the, the, you also have to look, the issue is not just that Facebook is big, it's that Facebook is not neutral on the services that it provides. Uh, you know, Facebook engages, discriminates. This is actually part of its business model. It gives different people different information. It gives different people uh, information uh, that uh, might lead them to, you know, away from the direction that they want to go. You know, so the reason that uh, if, uh, that Facebook provides just you know different information to different people uh, is because they make a lot of money by selling advertising to different people. You know, that's where that's in fact all of their their their, their revenue comes from advertising. Uh, so their entire business model is essentially built around the idea of uh, sort of hoovering up all this information about people, studying what people do, uh, and then using that information to manipulate people into certain actions. And then sort of selling this service of manipulating people uh, to advertisers that want to get you to do something uh, or, you know, in some cases to uh, foreign powers that might want to get you to vote in a different way. You know, it's like... If Procter & Gamble comes a call in and says, hey, we want to advertise Tide and get you to buy this new kind of Tide, Facebook is there to help you. If Vladimir Putin is coming along and says, I want to get you to vote for this person rather than that person, well, Facebook's there to help you with that, too, as long as you'll pay the bills. You know, if you're going to put money into it, then they're going to help you out. So the... Uh, so the issue here is not that they're simply just breaking Facebook up. That's actually just, that's pretty easy in terms of understanding what to do because we saw what they bought. Uh, the issue is also providing, imposing the same type of neutrality protections, the same type of anti-discrimination protections that we have imposed on every previous network monopoly in American history, railroads and telegraph and telephones, and electrical for, uh, companies, and, 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 and broadcast networks. This is not, there's nothing new about these regulations. No powerful intermediary should ever uh, uh, sort of deliver different information, different services, different prices to different people. We've never done it before, and we're not going to continue to do it going forward. 
Uh, Mark, you've just heard Barry's strong case not only for breaking up Facebook by spinning off uh, WhatsApp and Instagram, but also by imposing anti-discrimination rules that would prohibit it from favoring some competitors over others and imposing different prices rather than others. Uh, do you agree or disagree with his case and, and why? Well, I, I disagree. Um, what, let me just address the, the, the bias issue, um, the neutrality issue. <clears throat> Never in our, our history has, and by our history, I'm not including just the United States, you can go back centuries, have, has marketing, has the, the, uh, the, the, the marketing of political ideas, marketing of products, marketing of political ideas ever been neutral. The platforms for them have, have never been neutral. Uh, neutrality is, is just not an interesting thing. People aren't attracted to it, and it's not necessarily a viable business model. This is one of the challenges of, of thinking, what if we broke up Facebook? Uh, would that actually be a viable business model? Chances are no, because what people are finding viable, what they're paying Facebook for, is that bias. Is it's, is it's being able to gather and use intelligence in ways that, that people find valuable. And so if we took the company and said, you can't do that anymore, we might not have a company anymore. And since the two billion or so whatever people around the world that have said, I want to be part of this, if we take that away from them by putting it into a model that just isn't financially viable, have we really made them, them better off? That's one of the, the studies that, that we have done over the years, and we, it's not me personally, but studies done by economists and others, looking at innovation, we found that ideas go to market only through viable business models. Lots of ideas are introduced. Lots of them are, are, are toyed with, but not all of them actually succeed because they can't get the business model right. And that's one of the things that when we think about WhatsApp, we think about Instagram, we imagine them as having successful business models, but they have a business model now given to them by Facebook. If we take that away, are they still then viable businesses? And we don't know for sure, but my guess is probably not. And so we would not necessarily have competition if we simply tried to break up the companies uh, in, in that particular way. Barry, how would uh, the goals that you've advocated both breaking up uh, parts of Facebook and also imposing anti-discrimination laws be achieved? Could it be done under existing antitrust laws, which include the Sherman Act, the Clayton Antitrust Act of 1914, and the Robinson-Patman Act of 36? Or would you have to pass new uh, federal statutes or have it done judicially? And in, in the course of answering, if you could give our listeners a sense of what the basic uh, framework of antitrust law is, that would be great. Uh, yes, I mean it's it's and this is the great question is like do you know do we need to pass new laws and and one of the things that Google and Facebook and and Amazon keep saying is oh you know maybe there's some problems here maybe we have to fix this or fix that a little bit but you need to do new law in order to do that and the fact is actually we don't need any new law we have a fantastically rich set of laws that we developed in the United States going back to the very beginning of our country. In fact, going back to 1773, going back to the fight against the British East India Company and the Boston Tea Party. You know, what was that fight about? That, was, that fight was, hey, you know what, in between the citizen as a seller of things and in between the citizen as a buyer of things, we do not need an intermediary. 
We don't need a giant crown corporation and telling us how to do our business. We can make markets all by ourselves and, and exchange with each other all by ourselves. You know, so what we're dealing with here is that same thing. We have this intermediary that is in between the person who wants to say something, the person who is writing something, the reporter, the book author on one side, and then the, the citizen who is trying to learn something, who's trying to understand something, who's trying to figure out how the world works on the other side. You got this intermediary that is not neutral, that is manipulating that information, that is manipulating that information in order to make money off. Because of their, their their business model of selling advertising, so uh, you know, uh, over the course of two hundred and forty years, we have developed in a huge variety of ways to deal with intermediaries, be they railroads or other types of transportation companies, or be they telegraph companies or telephone companies or or uh, cable companies or all kinds of other kinds of you know uh, uh, communication firms we've developed a whole, you know this wide set of, of of tools and we have used them repeatedly most recently in 2015 with the the net neutrality order which you know in which we imposed precisely this thing of neutrality on the cable uh, uh, corporations on on Verizon on on on, on AT&T uh, on Comcast you know, we just did this. And in fact, Google and Facebook supported that because they said, oh, if, if we don't have non-discrimination laws applying to, uh, 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 to the, 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 the telecommunications firm, they're going to discriminate against us. But now that, you know, once that happened, as soon as the, 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 you know, the, the, we look at like their power, they're totally against it. Of course they are, because they make money off discrimination. They get make money off manipulation. Their ability to manipulate is a license to extort. That's what they do. That's how what they extort money uh, to to you know from people who are trying to get from one side of the market to the other. Uh, and it's a wonderful business model if you happen to be Google or Facebook, but it's not a business model that we are going to continue to abide in this uh, this com- this country. Uh, and um, in our antitrust toolkit, we have every single tool uh, that we can use, and, and they can be applied by a wide variety of different authorities, including Congress, if need be. Mark, Facebook uh, has emphasized, uh, as you did uh, initially, that it has competitors in messaging and digital communications, including Apple and Google. And also that antitrust law focuses on companies that are, raise prices too much. And since Facebook is free, it might be tough to argue that it harms consumers. Uh, do you agree with that defense? And do you agree with or disagree with, with Barry that uh, Facebook could be regulated under existing laws? Well, I, I agree with Facebook in the, in the sense that it does compete aggressively for people's time and attention. That's, that's one of the main things that it needs to make its business model work, is people to pay attention to what's on that screen. And they do. They, they compete with a lot of different um, other types of tech companies, but a whole lot of other people as well. Because not only do you compete in a sense of, of there's time and attention on the screen, but you also attract people to the screen and compete with other things that they, they do in their lives. Um, so I agree with Facebook in, in that regard. Um, I, I also agree with, with Barry 
that I don't think we need necessarily new laws. If you look at, for example, the breakup of AT&T, that was a negotiated deal. And if there's going to be a breakup in any of these instances, I'm guessing that that's going to be a, um, a negotiated deal as well. But a couple of things that, that Barry said I think are important to, to kind of surface just a little bit more. And one is like the net neutrality debate. That was an excellent example of Facebook, Google, and some other people on what we call edge providers, people that provide content on the internet, making, trying to make sure that they did not face competition from people who are in the network space. And so it was, it was someone asking the government, divide up the market. Don't, don't allow these other types of people to compete with us. And something else that was shown in the economic research on that is that enforcing net neutrality, by enforcing I mean having rules that say it has to happen. A lot of people do it voluntarily and that's fine, but having rules that say you have to treat everyone exactly the same actually makes it harder for startups to compete with Facebook or to compete with Google. Both of those companies have extensive telecommunication networks of their own, custom designed for their services. If you want to start up and compete with a Facebook, you have to hope that the internet that's out there serves your needs. But it doesn't if it's designed to be neutral across everyone. Facebook has a network designed for Facebook. And so the, the net neutrality rules actually would be protecting Facebook and Google and others from, um, from the types of competition we would actually like them to, uh, to see. Barry, let's uh, delve in on the free speech implication of this debate. Um, in his op-ed, uh, Chris Hughes, the Facebook co-founder, said the most problematic aspect of Facebook's power is Mark Zuckerberg's unilateral control over speech. The most extreme example of Facebook manipulating speech happened in Minamar in 2017, and he describes uh, an example of uh, Facebook favoring one side over another. And I'm uh, delighted that uh, one of our great We the People listeners, uh, Jean-Paul Rotelad, wrote in uh, just recently and asked, would it be constitutional for Congress to regulate corporations to adhere to the principles of free speech on their platforms, such as Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and so far, as they become now, as some have argued, a public town square? Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's, um, uh, I'm gonna, uh, besides the the case that Chris Hughes mentioned in Myanmar, actually, I'll give a case uh, for, that's from right here in the United States. You know, and this is uh, my friend Nicholas Thompson is the editor of Wired magazine. And uh, last, I think it was last February, February 2018, uh, he published a, a cover story in Wired about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and the sort of all of the problems that they uh, sort of got themselves into uh, over the previous you know year or so. And uh, the cover uh, uh, of photograph, or it was actually sort of a painting of, of Mark Zuckerberg, it made him kind of look like a victim. You know, his face was bruised. Uh, and, then, and then the article was basically a pretty positive uh, piece about their struggles, their efforts to sort of figure out how to run their organization more effectively. In the middle of this, this, this piece, right in the middle of this piece, sort of, uh, which is a pretty positive piece about Facebook, uh, Nick Thompson inserted this one paragraph in which he said, every journalist knows, and I'm just paraphrasing here, but every journalist knows that, uh, that they are just sharecroppers on Facebook's industrial farm. 
And in this case, the farmer, I mean, the, 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 share, the, the, the master can turn any of a number of different switches to manipulate their, their, the number of uh, uh, views they have, the number of uh, the amount of money they get, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the amount of traffic they get, uh, in ways that can entirely harm uh, that particular uh, business, that particular publisher, that particular editor, that particular reporter. You know, so on one side you got uh, a company with uh, a corporation with all power, and the other side you got someone who's just trying to talk to their fellow Americans. Nick Thompson just updated that article uh, uh, recently, uh, uh, within the last month in in, in Wired, uh, and uh, you know it's the 15 months that in Facebook's history since that last since that happened. So most of the article is about what happened in Facebook. But in the middle of the new article, there's a little report from Nick, uh, from Nick about what happened to Wired last year after they published that first article. What happened is that within a week of that article coming out, Facebook shut them down. It shut off all traffic to Wired. It shut them down for a month. One month. One month. In retribution for an article that was relatively positive uh, uh, coverage of, of Mark Zuckerberg and the rest of the Facebook team. So that's the kind of power that this corporation has. That's how they use their power to promote free speech in the United States. They use it to terrify the editors and publishers of our news magazines and our newspapers. Don't talk about us. Don't come after us because we will shut you down. So uh, in terms of what we're going to do, when we need to do it, well, we need to move pretty fast because when a corporation shows that this is what it is, is willing to do in today's, uh, uh, in today's world, uh, the American people have no choice but to deal with that that kind of a grotesque abuse of their license immediately and overwhelmingly. Uh, Mark, do you agree or disagree that Facebook is openly discriminating against its critics by shutting them down, uh, as well as engaging in lesser forms of uh, speech discrimination? And uh, could Facebook be regulated under the First Amendment, uh, some have argued uh, that uh, the social media sites could be treated like state actors who have to follow the First Amendment, uh, constrained by the Constitution, or, or viewed like common carriers and therefore subject to regulation, or like news editors and so forth. Whereas others say that Facebook and Google themselves have free speech rights that might be violated by attempts to regulate them. What, what's your sense? Well, I don't know why Facebook turns anyone on or off. Uh, that's the investigations could be done to determine you know, was what was motivate what was Facebook's motivation for cutting off wired. If they did, I really don't know. Um, that could be studied. Now, but what's important there is not so much that um, that Facebook has the ability to do that, but whether Facebook is upfront with people that that is what it would indeed do. If it says to its customers and clients, Wired and such included, that we will turn you off under these conditions, um, then that's a free contract that people can enter into or not. If it's hiding that, 
if it's doing it arbitrarily, then I think we have, have issues under our current laws, under whether or not that uh, Facebook is dealing honestly or fraudulently with uh, with the customers. And that, if it's violating those kinds of laws, then then that should be pursued. Getting to the other part of your, your question, though, and that is like regulated under the First Amendment and such. And I'm not enough of a legal scholar, or actually no kind of legal scholar, to tell you whether First Amendment can be applied to a private company. I'm skeptical of that, but um, you know, people can disagree with me on that with, with great validity. One of the problems that, that Facebook has in particular, which I've pointed out in a couple of things I've written before, is it's taken things that people have typically used separately in the past and trying to combine them all together. So it has these, this function that we would normally have thought of as common carriage, which is a message is simply transmitted. And that is all that's done. It's not changed, it's not altered, it's, it's not, and there's nothing that, that's changed about it. Um, and Facebook has that kind of a, a quality to it, but then it will turn people off. Or it will say, we just don't like this message. And, and cut it out for whatever reason that might be. That violates how people think about common carriage. It's, it feels like the post office says, I'm not gonna deliver mail to you anymore. Uh, that's, those two things don't go well together. It also has this aura, this work that's very much like a media company where it actually prioritizes content and says who's gonna see what, um, which is by its nature, it, it has to do that. Um, any anyone that's that's involved in distributing information that it's if there's a limited space that it's going to be displayed it's going to prioritize in some way that's part of the business but that's what we've seen typically in the mass media um, where we expect editors to play a particular kind of role with roles that are well understood and that isn't something that facebook has has come up to and, and said yeah we're going to separate this out so i i really think that face one of facebook's major challenges is that it's taken things that people are used to seeing as separate and tried to put them under one umbrella and i'm not sure that's going to be sustainable as a business model that's part of why it's running into the political problems it has uh, so i think indeed the government could say there's some aspect of what facebook does that looks like common carriage but it couldn't do that with all of it. For displaying news and such, that's not something we have under common carrier. Barry, just because uh, Jean-Paul Radelard asked it, I'll take one more beat on this question of how specifically you suggest that Congress, the states, or the courts could require corporations to adhere to free speech principles, and, and would it be constitutional, as he asked, for Congress to uh, require that uh, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook and uh, Google respect free speech principles. You know, in the case of you know, Twitter, Twitter is somewhat of a you know, more complicated uh, uh, question. I mean, the, but you know, actually, Mark, I wasn't sure Mark and I were going to agree on much of anything. But you know, this last little uh, period, Mark sort of uh, sort of took us to the, the crux of the problem, which is that Facebook is two things that we don't normally see together, and that actually was what I had said earlier, which is that you you know traditionally you're either a comic carrier. Um, uh, or you're something else. You're a publisher, or you're you know you're you're you, uh, you're, you're a seller of something, uh, and you depend on common carriers to get to market. And uh, so what we see here is this this fundamental conflict between this corporation that sees itself both as a content provider and manipulator, and they have such a they become such an essential facility in connecting people uh, that you can't get around them. You depend on. Them. 
And when you get shut down, and that's the thing, is like when they shut you down, there just ain't no way to to get to market. To, you know, you're just going to lose half your your readership overnight, all of a sudden. You know, and you can't survive. That's a death sentence. You know, for 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 almost any uh, uh, seller, any publisher, when you lose half your audience instantly. Um, so. So, you know, how do we actually deal with this? How do we ensure that we actually have a system that promotes free expression and also promotes the sort of robust journalism that we uh, need for our democracy? Uh, well, it's that we, we clarify the difference between the common carrier, the, the connector uh, in the system, and uh, the, the provider of information. And the fact is, is that as, as Mark is getting at, uh, Facebook can't be both. It cannot be both. You know, it's going to be, it's going to provide, uh, you know, a, a connection. Uh, uh, and, uh, and that's what its job is. But it's not going to be the, the manipulator, the publisher of information. Can't do that. And what we need is to ensure that the people who are publishing, and there's all these rules about publishing. And it's like if you're publishing libelous material, we can bring cases against you. You know, if you're if you're uh, you know uh, um, you know there's a whole system to regulate speech based on the, the traditional differentiation between the common carrier and the publisher. And so all we have to do is go back to that system, which has been in place since the founding of the nation. And voila, the problem of Facebook goes away, and people can say whatever they want to say, and if they break the law, uh, there's ways to deal with it without seeming to shut down uh, systems of communication that we all rely on. Mark, you referred earlier to a bipartisan consensus around some of these issues. Can you imagine a bipartisan consensus about requiring the platforms to respect free speech, uh, especially in light of the net neutrality debate, which was initially cast as a First Amendment issue. The claim was that Comcast was discriminating against its competitors and thwarting free speech in the process, but pretty quickly became polarized uh, where it was ours against D's. I think, yeah, I think it'd be very hard for us to to have some legislation that, co that comes out of even whatever consensus we might have. Not so much for substantive reasons, but for political reasons. Um, the, the, the politics of, well, the, the politics we see going on in Congress, um, Washington, to a lesser extent around the country, is kind of sucking all the oxygen out of any kind of substantive legislation. It's really hard to do things because of the, the animosities that we see. Even if there's, there's, a, there's consensus that um, at least some Republicans believe that Facebook, Twitter, et al. are biased against conservatives. And on the other side of the aisle, there's there's a belief that they're just too big. And so maybe that, that brings us together on some substantive issue. It still takes political energy to actually do something. And I'm not sure that we we really have that. Um, one, one thing I, I probably should clarify, though, and, and what Barry and I have just been talking about, um, I, I agree completely that you know, Facebook has combined some things that, that we've not had combined before, and I would add into it not just the two things we talked about, but also this kind of convener of meeting rooms, if you will. We've always had our clubs that said, here's who can speak, and, and here's what you can talk about, and, and Facebook has kind of taken on that, that kind of a role as well, which isn't going real well for it. Where I think he and I might disagree is what to do about that. I'm very happy to let Facebook try 
and maybe it creates something none of us have ever seen before, and, and people do adapt to it well. Um, but maybe that really is too much for people to get their heads around, and Facebook suffers as a business, and someone else starts playing those roles quite quite well. I, what I would hesitate is having the government can come in and say, here are the business models people are allowed to have. Even because we might have the situation where we haven't seen this before, but it could really be valuable. It's just it's totally new to us. Well, uh, we've talked about Facebook. Let's now turn to Apple and uh, the case for regulating it and the role that the courts might play. Barry, the Supreme Court recently decided uh, an antitrust case involving Apple by a five to four majority with Justice Kavanaugh joining uh, the liberals in allowing an investigation to proceed. Tell us about that case and what it says about the court's views about antitrust law. Yeah, that was a case, uh, that was a very interesting case. It had to do with the uh, ways in which Apple sort of manages its the app store. And um, and the in that case, the, the um, um, there was a, a question about whether sort of the exercise of power over the the, the, the developers of apps, uh, you know, uh, you know, if that affected the the, 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 the quality of the service to to um, the users of the apps, uh, you know, well, who gets to sue? And you know, so it was. It had to do with like the the chain. You know, it's like the uh, there's a uh, in, in antitrust. There was a, a case uh, some while back that sort of limited the ability to bring a suit to the person who is most directly affected, and that people further down the chain uh, are not allowed to uh, bring suit. Uh, so this this was a it was a somewhat technical question about who gets to bring suit, and basically, is this really a market? In, uh, the app store is it really a market, or is it a system that Apple is manipulating in, in ways that sort of um, uh, make it the owner of these actions? Uh, so it was a somewhat technical case. We were really uh, uh, happy to see uh, Judge Kavanaugh, sort of uh, or Justice Kavanaugh, uh, come out with the decision that he did. Um, but you know, it's like uh, in general, just to be clear, it's like in, from our point of view at Open Markets, uh, you know, there's uh, five super giant corporations in the United States. You got uh, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and Microsoft. And uh, of those five, uh, the two, you know, there's there's three uh, that. Uh, sort of routinely, it's actually part of their business model, engage in the manipulation of interactions between buyers and sellers, between speakers and listeners. And that's uh, Google, Facebook, and, and Amazon. And the other two, Apple, uh, the Apple has a number of choke points that it controls. It has the ability to manipulate sort of interactions in certain areas. It, it has done so in a couple cases in the past in the music industry. Uh, uh, Similarly, Microsoft is, you know, they, they control certain choke points. They have the ability to manipulate uh, certain interactions. Apple and, and, and Microsoft do not use that power in the same way that Google, Facebook, and Amazon do. So from our point of view, there's like three corporations that pose imminent direct threats to uh, the, uh, the American, American democracy. That's Google, Facebook, and Amazon. And Apple and, and Microsoft, I mean, they're, they're, there's a lot of antitrust problems with both of those corporations. There's a lot of power they shouldn't have. There's a lot of, of uh, uh, competition that should be engineered uh, uh, to make them function better and to serve people better. Uh, but neither of them poses an, an immediate direct threat to the American Republic. 
Thank you for that uh, distinction between Google, Facebook, and Amazon, and Apple, and Microsoft. Uh, Mark, I, I, I know you're not uh, a lawyer, but if, any, any thoughts you have on the Apple suit would be interesting. Just to summarize a bit more from the case, was, this was Apple versus Pepper, and it turned on an interpretation of a 1977 case called Illinois Brick, where the Supreme Court said triple damages for violations of federal antitrust law are not available to an indirect purchaser. And the question, according to Justice Kavanaugh, was whether the bright line rule in the case, which authorized suits by direct purchasers but barred suits by indirect purchasers, covered Apple. And Justice Kavanaugh said that iPhone users were direct purchasers from Apple and could bring the antitrust suits because they bought the apps directly from Apple. And the dissenters, led by Justice Gorsuch, said this was overly simplistic and a misreading of the Illinois Brick case. So it, it is indeed technical. But do you have thoughts either about the case or about the divisions of views about antitrust on the U.S. Supreme Court today? Sure. Um, I, I think you actually described the, the case pretty well there. Um, it um, it was indeed a technical issue of who gets to bring the, the suit. And the Supreme Court decided that even if you did not pay uh, a fee directly to the app store, you're affected by it. And therefore, it's just a matter of who's paying the bill because who's paying the bill technically versus who's paying the bill ultimately. And, and oh yeah, I have no particular uh, concern with that. Um, what I what I do want us to always think about well is the substantive issue that that is going on, at least with the App Store, and that is is there indeed market power there? Because one of the things that we struggle with, not as openly as we would like to admit, as we admit, is what does it even mean to have market power in this case? Um, a lot of people will talk about uh, Apple's ability to manipulate things, but. That's the essence of doing business, is to take some basic inputs, manipulate them into something that people value, and then hand it off to them, sometimes free, sometimes in exchange for money. Um, all of us are in that business. I manipulate information. That's what scholars do. Barry manipulates information. That's what a think tank like his does. Uh, we all do that. That's how we add value to, to customers. So the question isn't whether or not we manipulate things, but do we damage the customers that, um, that we're supposed to be serving. And, and I think that is it's where it really gets complicated because if you take the App Store of Apple, for example, that is part of what made the, the iPhone and Apple very successful was indeed that exact manipulation because we had people in the smartphone business who tried to have stores that did not do that, app stores that did not involve that kind of manipulation. And they were not successful. Customers voted. They voted very clearly that they actually like that and value it. And if they're saying that's what we want, then I think we're very hard pressed to say you should not have that as a matter of, of antitrust. Well, let us return to the companies that Barry said you, uh, Barry, at Open Markets are most concerned about, uh, Amazon and Google. Uh, the European Union has been conducting a probe into whether Amazon is using its data to get an edge on third-party merchants. And the question is whether Amazon is identifying its best-selling products elsewhere and steering companies to its own products over those of its rivals. Uh, Jeff Bezos counters that Walmart is much larger than Amazon, as uh, Amazon tweeted uh, in response to Elizabeth Warren's proposal that Amazon should be broken up. And Jeff Bezos has also said that Amazon is a small player in global retail because 90% of retail remains offline. So Barry, what is the case in your view against 
Amazon, the antitrust case, and uh, should it be broken up? Uh, well, jumping ahead to the answer, yes, it should be broken up. And and as we were talking about with Facebook, the the platform uh, you know, where people come together to buy and sell, which has become so dominant, uh, you know, like more than half of people who go online to buy things go straight to Amazon. Um, that also has to be made neutral. We have an example of what a neutral uh, platform looks like. It's, you know, eBay is a neutral platform. It's a, and the, and that what that means is that the people who are selling things, uh, they determine their own pricing and uh, they determine how they're uh, uh, within certain uh, 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 pretty rough parameters. They determine uh, how their products are, are, are marketed, um, and uh, and the interactions are pretty much directly between the buyer and the seller. Uh, in, in in the case of Amazon, they sort of gather all this information about every buyer, about you know uh, you know where you've been, what you do. It's like you know uh, uh, what your, your what your sins are, what your where. Uh, uh, you know, uh, your quirks are, um, you know, what, what books you read, uh, you know, and, and it's not just what they, they gather from their own uh, website. They're also buying up all kinds of data from other folks. I mean, this is what they routinely just buy data from other folks, from your bank, uh, maybe from your car company. And, and, and then they use this to, to create a profile of you so that they can, you know, sort of determine how to sell you things that you might not want or more things than you really want or at a different price than what you expected. Uh, they're doing the same thing to everyone who's on there who's, uh, who's selling things. They're, they're, you know, they're studying every single thing that they do. And, you know, increasingly, you know, uh, uh, you know Amazon, yeah, they, they're not, in terms of physical sales, they're not anywhere near as the dominant in the physical world, say for the sale of Tide, as Walmart is. But when it comes to the sale of uh, uh, things online, and this, you know, uh, electronics and toys and, and music and, 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 and film, uh, you know, they've become, uh, and books, uh, they've become, in some cases, entirely dominant. It's like the main place where certain things are sold. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the idea that you would sort of treat Amazon as like some kind of whole and just say, take all the different categories of what it sells and put them into a big, you know, blob and say, well, they, it, this is the amount of money that they made. Uh, that's ridiculous. What you do in antitrust is you, you, you break things up, the markets up, and you say, well, how much activity do these people actually control? How, what, what percentage of the sale of books do they control? What percentage of the sale of film do they control? What percentage of the sale of music do they control? What percentage of the sale of, of online electronics do they control? And what you'll see in, in case after case after case after case is that when it comes to online commerce, and sometimes in, in just general commerce, uh, they become the dominant player. Um, and uh, so um, what we have is, is a situation in which, uh, uh, you know, the, the basic fixes are the same uh, here. Is that you want to do two things. You want to separate out um, um, the sale, the, the platform itself where people come together, and, and what's sold on it. The, the product, the content. You want to have no vertical integration uh, to, uh, just to get rid of any kind of conflicts of interest. Uh, and then the second thing you want to do is when you have these platforms where people like to come, if this is the dominant place where business is done, you neutralize it. You make sure that they're charging just a reasonable fee for connecting the buyer and seller. And 
You know, this is really, really simple stuff. This is what we do with our uh, uh, our credit cards, right? It's like the credit cards provide the ability to connect the, uh, the buyer and the seller. Uh, and, uh, you know, they charge a really outrageous amount of money. They charge maybe 3% of the deal. They shouldn't charge that much. But when Amazon does that kind of connecting, they're charging 30 40 50%, sometimes more. Uh, so, again, it's like the solutions are the same. No vertical integration. And, and neutralization, no discrimination, no price discrimination, no terms discrimination, common carriage. Mark, a strong statement by Barry. He says when it comes to online sales, Amazon does do- dominate. Uh, Amazon is supposed to account for 52% of all online sales in the U.S. this year, up from 58% last year. And he says the solution is no vertical integration and no price discrimination. Uh, do you agree or disagree? Why? Well, I, I disagree, and I think the example he gave really illustrates that, because he, he developed a contrast between eBay and Amazon, and, and a lot of people know the difference, and we choose. We choose Amazon oftentimes over eBay. Why? Well, I don't know why other people do, but for myself, I find it hard to search for things on eBay. I, I have to be very active in digging through the details, whereas Amazon's using it's artificial intelligence, it's knowledge of what's going on to serve me better. It saves me in what we call in economics, you know, kind of the search costs or the transaction costs. So it actually benefits me. And, and I like that. And so I'm choosing it. And people do keep Amazon honest. Uh, people will use Google or some other, other type of buying service to check prices, to check availability, and keep coming back to Amazon because it's doing better. So to think about Amazon as controlling anything isn't quite true. The fact that I choose to buy from Amazon or I choose to buy from anyone else doesn't mean they control me. It's mean that I'm making a choice that I think they're doing better. And I do, and most people do, occasionally inspect and see if that uh, kind of rule of thumb we have, buy from Amazon, is still the right thing. So if we try to step in and fix this situation, by making Amazon more like eBay, we make a whole lot of people worse off. And I don't know what the point of that would be. One last round before closing arguments, and it's a large company, but uh, we just have a little bit of time, and that's Google. Barry, uh, Google is the third company that you said poses the greatest threat to uh, American democracy, and among the criticisms of Google are that its uh, dominance in search allows it to uh, destroy its rivals because it can show its own products above its competitors, and it's also faced scrutiny in Europe over its uh, search practices and, and uh, its uh, uh, use on smartphones, um, including favoring the Android operating system. What is the antitrust case against Google, and what are the solutions? Oh my gosh! I mean, with Google, you have so many potential antitrust cases against them. Uh, and um, yeah, but I mean, one thing we should understand that you know, Google, people say, "Oh, Google is a search company." It's like, no, Google's an advertising company. Almost every single they own three hundred plus different companies. You know, Alphabet. They created this Alphabet, you know, this Alphabet uh, holding company, this this conglomerate. You know, but it's like almost all their money, almost every dollar that they actually earn comes from advertising. 
You know, so what are they doing? What's their business model? Their business model is to gather, you know, it's, it's similar to, to, to Facebook, just like on a bigger and more sophisticated scale. Uh, they just you know, use all these different platforms that they, uh, uh, they, they, they control to gather all this information on you um, so that they can manipulate your choices and then sell their ability to manipulate you to advertisers. You know, so last year they made more than $110 billion by selling out their manipulation machine to other folks. You know, so they gather information about you, they gather your secrets, they, they learn all the bad things about you, they learn the good things, they put it all into a pot, and then they sort of use the fact that they have this license to engage in discrimination to, 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 to give you different information than your neighbor, to give you different prices than your neighbor, to, uh, uh, to send you on a different route down the street than your neighbor. They use this ability to manipulate you um, uh, to, um, uh, to manipulate you into buying certain things or making certain choices, and then they sell that to people willing to pay for it. And again, it might be a Procter & Gamble or, or it might be Vladimir Putin. We don't know. They'll take anybody's money. It's just long green, right? So, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you, know, uh, you know, what would we do with, with Google? I mean, Google is, uh, uh, I mean, it's really phenomenal. They have a whole bunch of different platforms that they've lashed together. You know, they're the dominant search uh, company, but they also have Chrome, they also have Android. They also have YouTube. Uh, they also are their dominant mapping company. Uh, they're the dominant uh, advertising technology company online, with, you know, because of their control of DoubleClick and and AdMob. You know, it's just you just add these up. They got you know at least ten different. A sort of platform monopolies that they've all lashed together in a way that reinforces each other. So they become more and more powerful every day. They gather more information over you. They have more ability to squeeze out their rivals. They have more ability to squeeze the people that rely on them to get to market. Squeeze them day after day. Extort, you know, uh, more and more money just to get to market. Uh, you know, so it's like it's the greatest money-making machine that's ever been put together. And but the problem with this is it is also an information manipulation machine. It's a news manipulation machine. It is a terror delivery machine. It makes people, you know, like what Facebook did with Wired. They have that ability to shut people down, to shift people away. Uh, so what we're facing in this giant manipulation machine is a direct threat to our democracy. You know, so it's not just that they're favoring their own goods, it's that they have the ability to exercise direct control over people, to scare people, to get people to do what they want to do. You know, this is an old problem in America. It goes back to the British East India Company. It goes back to the beginning of rule of law, which was established against the, the use of patents and monopolies by Queen Elizabeth and King James in the early 17th century to manipulate and corrupt the society around them. Rule of law means that everyone is treated the same. Anti-discrimination laws are one of the fundamental ways that we establish rule of law in our society. Google, Facebook, Amazon are destructive of fundamental rule of law. We will take them down. Thank you for those strong words. Mark, you heard Barry's case against Google. He compared it to the East India Company, whose threats to 
Liberty helped spark the American Revolution. Do you agree or disagree with his diagnosis of Google's threat to democracy and his claim that it violates antitrust laws as a walking antitrust violation? Well, I agree with how he's described how the market works. I'll get come back to that. I disagree that Google is anything like the East India Company. All of those relied upon the coercive power of the crown, the coercive power of government to put them in place and to give them market power. And that, and sometimes governments do that. It's happened in our own country. It's happened in other countries as well. That has never happened in the case of, of Google. It's never happened in the case of any other tech companies, at least to my knowledge, that the government has used its power to say, you must do business here or you do no business at all. Now, that's coercion. That's extortion. That's manipulation. All of the, the words you could use that, that gen up a lot of, of negative emotions, you need that kind of power behind it. Um, a business where you engage voluntarily does, has none of that. And in the case of Google, all of us use it or don't use it voluntarily. I choose whether or not to use YouTube. I choose whether or not to use Google's search engine. I choose all those things based upon how valuable are they to me. And I test other services on a regular basis, so do a lot of other people if you look at the um, uh, how the market research is, is done. So the, the way that it, it works is essentially, but with a, a little bit of an additional um, set, uh, additional step to how, how Barry described it, that Google competes for your time and attention by providing you things that you find valuable. You're willing to spend time online with their service because it's doing something for you. That then allows them to learn about you, that they then go to people who want to send you information and Google charges them for it. That's exactly what broadcasters do. It's exactly what uh, uh, newspapers do, magazines, etc. But theirs isn't as anywhere near as information rich because of the, the technology limits of, of yesteryear, if you will. What we want to understand, though, uh, this, this is the additional step, is in Google in doing that, and all of the, the types of platforms try to do this as well, they are setting up a system where when they learn about you, they have to, they try to improve your experience to get you to spend more time with them. So for example, um, some of the uh, competitors to Google have complained that uh, you know, if, if you are searching for a hotel, Google might put its hotel service up first. But in doing that, and, and that's the, the competitors say, gee, that's awful. Well, but understand that if Google in doing that brings additional brings in additional money, what Google then does is say, ah, oh, it's even more profitable to get people onto my platform than it was before. So they start improving the customer experience and they can't extort the customers because the customers would readily go someplace else or click past what Google is presenting in this case of, of uh, hotel room searches. So the that essence of the platform that the company has to make it a very impressive service for the customers, a very impressive experience, is what's really important. And the vertical integration actually makes that valuable. We've just seen too many examples of neutral platforms that customers simply chose to not use. Well, it is time for closing arguments in this extremely rich and wide-ranging uh, debate. And Barry, the first word is to you in just a few sentences. Uh, do Google, Amazon, and Facebook threaten constitutional values or not? 
Marx said that we have choice. You know, that's what all the libertarians always say. There's choice. You know, but, you know, I'll just give you one quick example. You know, it's like this is on mapping. You know, Uber. Uber does wants to escape from the power of Google. They want to be able to control their own cars. They want to be able to control the destiny of their own company. They want the, to be able to choose their own pathways through the streets. They said in their their before their IPO, you know what? We tried. We tried to figure out a way to escape from Google's control over maps or Google's control over the streets, and we couldn't do it. So going forward, it's like they can shut us down any day of the week. You know, they can charge us whatever they want, and they can change that. That any, they can change that. That, that, that what they charge us any day of the week, any moment of the day. That's a very large company, Uber. And you know what? This company, this corporation, Uber, they just said we live and we die at the whim of Google because they control the maps. And it's like, as I said before, they, Google controls so many other things as well. And that, you know, one of the things that Mark said, it's like you can only have government power if, you know, government bestows a charter on you, if you're a monopoly like the British East India Company. That is ridiculous. I mean, the time and again what we have seen in the United States and other countries is when a monopoly rises up to the point where it has complete control over or nearly complete control over the marketplace. They have that is the power to govern. That is the power to determine whether you live or die. You know, if you're a corporation, a business trying to get to market, if they can block you from market, that is the power of life and death That is the power of thriving or being bankrupt. So it was like what we see here today is the greatest concentration of power in private government, in private government that is entirely outside our control. We have no hold over Google. We have no hold over Amazon. We have no hold on a day-to-day -day basis over what Facebook do, does. But those corporations have absolute control over us. And the only thing that we can wield against them is the public government that we erected in 1776 to protect us, to protect ourselves against private autocratic government. Now we can, and the thing is, we're going to hear all kinds of libertarian nonsense in the coming years because these guys pay for all these libertarian shops out there to print, to print, and to broadcast these liber this libertarian nonsense about choice. But we we do have a choice, and our choice is we can sit back and say goodbye to democracy and say goodbye to our fundamental liberties, or we can fight. That's our choice, and I know that. The American people are going to fight. And one of the things that is going to fall besides the power of Google and Facebook and Amazon is this whole libertarian apparatus for the production and distribution and broadcast of nonsense. Mark, the last word is to you. Do Google, Facebook and Amazon threaten constitutional values or not? I don't think so. Um, I, I've tried to to look at monopolies over over the uh, the over the couple of centuries we've had this country and and actually back farther in history as well, and I always I, I failed to find an instance where a, an actual monopoly arose that could endure without the government sanctioning it, without the government playing a role in it. 
Um, that's just always been true. You need that coercive power. Um, Jim Collins wrote the book "Why You Know How the Mighty Fail and or Fall," and and one of the things that is simply true in in uh, in a market economy like ours is companies rise up and are very very successful, but then they have trouble sustaining that because it's just hard for them to continue to adapt. Um, AT and T became a monopoly because the government said you'll be a monopoly. That would happened around the, the time of the First World War. Um, Standard Oil gained, what, a 98% or so market share at one time, but that was because of its relationship with the railroads, which the government had a role in setting up how all of that was going to work. That's just been the case over time. Um, I, I think George Gildner in his book, Life After Google, got it right that the way the tech companies are working today, that... Um, they're probably going to, to falter sometime fairly soon because of the limits in their business models, that they're not using the richness of a customer's experience and engagement uh, the way that they should. That's a huge open opportunity for the next set of companies that um, in a few years we'll all be worried about again. Um, it just seems to be true that every generation has the giants that it worries about and then the giants fail in the next generation. It wasn't too long ago we thought about Walmart being this giant we all had to worry about and before that it was someone else and before that it was someone else. But customers do indeed make their choices and when someone offers them a better deal, they tend to take it as long as the business model is viable. Thank you so much, Mark Jameson and Barry Lynn, for a truly illuminating, wide-ranging, and powerful debate about the question, should big tech be broken up? Dear We the People listeners, by the time you hear this, the House Judiciary Committee will have held a hearing on online platforms and market powers. The, uh, part one is the free and diverse press. Check out the transcript and then write to me and tell me what you think. In the meantime, Mark, Barry, thank you so much for joining Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Today's show was engineered by Dave Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone who might enjoy a weekly dose of constitutional debate. I think I better add that you can also subscribe on other platforms as well. Do not favor one platform over another. And always remember, dear We the People listeners, that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people from across the country who are inspired by discussions like the one you just heard, which was so substantive and educational, and I know taught you as much as it taught me. And that is all fueled by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please support that crucially important mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. In the spirit of today's debate, give a small donation, $1, just to signal your support for the National Constitution Center and for this podcast. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.